Well, you can turn your, your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 7 again. We'll pick up where we left off. Luke chapter 7, we'll... verse 11. I've titled this one, The Ultimate Miracle. And approaching this point now as we've studied through Luke, we've witnessed numerous miracles, all kinds of stuff, right? And uh, signs and wonders and healings, all done by Jesus. We've seen the lame walk, we've seen uh, the deaf here, we've seen lepers cleansed, all pictures of the sign of His coming. Uh, Just last week, uh, a centurion servant facing imminent death. Uh, was healed by Jesus just by speaking a word. Servant said, you just speak the word. But we still haven't witnessed the ultimate miracle. There remains one human condition that we all deal with, we all suffer, even today. There remains one human condition. No doctor or religious sage can remedy. You know what it is? Death. Death. It's a problem that each of us will encounter. Keeps many people awake at night. Bothers them. They're anxious about dying. What about death? What happens after death? Is there a solution to this ultimate problem that everybody has? Your expiration date, right? Everybody has one. Our ultimate problem demands an ultimate solution, which requires an ultimate miracle. Fortunately, we have Jesus. The remedy to death is, It doesn't originate in man. Everybody thinks they'll live forever. Well, you will, one place or another. We possess no elixir. We have no serum, no potion that can deal with this. No way to reverse it because the wages of sin is death. We all sin. Everyone is spiritually dead. Every person will physically die unless Christ comes first. Humans just in themselves don't have the capacity to remedy this situation. We can't fix it. The talented theologian you probably heard of, uh, great speaker and preacher, Erwin Lutzer. He previously taught at Moody Bible Institute first semester preaching or homiletics class. And he used to emphasize this conundrum about this death that we have to deal with to his new students in the following way. I'm told that he would take them on a field trip to a cemetery... One at a time, he would stand them in front of a grave as he would hand them a Bible. He invited them then to demonstrate just how powerful their preaching was. Can you raise the dead? And he did that to show how unless the Spirit of God quickens, no matter how good our preaching is, no matter how eloquent we are, it will be as effective as raising a corpse. It demands a miracle of God to raise the dead. It's my understanding over the years at that cemetery that they used to go to, they're still standing at zero converts. None. Why? Scripture says it is allotted for man to die once. And then the judgment. All those bodies laying in that cemetery, too late. They had their chance while they were alive. Too late to reach them with the gospel. Lutzer is affirming it must be the Spirit of God who employs the Word of God. God must speak to do the will of God. The Apostle James in chapter 118 puts it this way. In the exercise of His will, God's will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. 
As believers, we were born again. This is John 1, verse 13. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We've been reborn, born again of God. And as illustrated in our scripture reading earlier, as we looked at Ezekiel chapter 37, in our natural unregenerated state, in our fallen state before becoming a Christian, we are as spiritually dead as those dried up bones. Dry, very dry, God says to Ezekiel. He walks them through the middle of those bones. Look how dead. Prophet Ezekiel writes, Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves. My people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. And I will place you on your land. Prophecy for Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. Then you'll know, declares the Lord. This prophecy of spiritual rebirth, this promise to Israel to be put back in the land, it's, it's well understood by the church, isn't it? Yeah, we know all about it. But the question poised today is, who could possibly raise the dead? Who could raise the dead except God? The answer is nobody. Nobody can raise the dead against God uh, except God. Which once again now will verify Jesus' identity. Who he is. That he's a true representative of God. As we saw last week, he could speak and the centurion's servant was healed. It's immensely important to answer this question today because of the reader of Luke. The reader of Luke is going to be encountered next week with a passage. Um, It's going to be a deputization from John. He's going to send some representatives of his. And he's going to ask through those representatives, Are you the expectant one? Right? Are you the expectant one? How, how timely a question for Palm Sunday. Are you the one? Are you the one we're waiting for? Take note of who takes credit for this, uh, for this man rising from the dead in our scripture reading, Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a city called Nine. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God. Saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. The report concerning Jesus went all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Folks, this type of scene, it's it's becoming commonplace now for Jesus. He goes to a place... He does a miracle, the crowd grows. It grows. The evidence uh, of him continues to grow as he travels preaching repentance and the kingdom of God. Preaching the kingdom of God. And it's this activity of evangelism, this, this, this outreach of him and his disciples, that activity which provides the occasions. 
That's what provides the opportunities to engage the people. Jesus was purposeful. He went to them. He didn't just anchor out in the middle of the lake, get himself some sun and kind of fanning himself and just kind of hope that someone's going to paddle on by so he can tell them about the kingdom. No. He's not just enjoying himself and hoping someone will come around and ask. We as Christians struggle with this all the time. Every single one of us. We, we, we can reason with ourselves, you know, if God really wants someone to know about Jesus, well, God could, you know, cause them to come and ask us, right? Somehow they could find their way to us and, and just come right out and ask. It's just about the feeblest notion of evangelism there is. If we can sit idly by and anticipate that people are going to come and, and just ask us, inquire into us as how they might be saved, you know, come up to us and say, friend, I'm spiritually dead. I don't know what to do about it, and I'm just hoping that you can help me out here. How often does that help happen to you? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I'm never sitting at the gas pump and, and have a guy on the other side just say, Hey, buddy! Know any way that I can get saved? How can I be born again? No, it's never happened to me. The dead don't revive themselves. The dead don't revive themselves. They don't ask. Sometimes people will misapply 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, to suggest just such a method of passive evangelism, which really isn't evangelism at all. But Peter did say we should... Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Really, is witnessing that easy? Is it that easy? Will people just eventually come around to you if you just wait? Unfortunately, folks, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. If you look at the context of 1 Peter chapter 3, you will discover that Peter is comforting those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. They're suffering persecution for the gospel. They had endured already various trials. They had been harshly treated for their witness. They had been called to suffer for the gospel as Christ had, as you look at that book. They had been insulted. In fact, they'd even been told, don't be surprised about the fiery ordeal that has come upon you through suffering for Christ. And immediately prior to, in 1 Peter 3.14, it says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, see their suffering, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation. People were being intimidated. Christians were being intimidated. And Peter says, do not be troubled. Why? He says, instead, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who will ask to give an account for the hope that is in you. Folks, the persecution... What they're suffering, that is their testimony. They're suffering for the sake of Christ. And people are trying to tempt them into abandoning their witness. Their neighbors probably ask, why do you keep on? Why don't you just forsake this way? You're, 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 you're being persecuted, you're being publicly humiliated, you're being intimidated. Why do you always just keep on with this Jesus stuff? Why don't you just shut up about it? It's to them who you make a defense of the hope that is in you. They already know what you stand for. They already know that you're being persecuted for your public testimony. 
Folks, suffering for the gospel isn't exactly passive evangelism. It's very active evangelism. In obeying Matthew chapter 28, we're told to go into all the world. Be active, go into the world. Passivity is not the approach of Jesus, nor the approach of the apostles who were martyred, nor was it of the early Christians who were burnt on a cross or burnt on a stake. That is not the approach. There exists no model of passive evangelism. Never told to do that. We're told to go into all the world. Sometimes the ground has been tilled a little bit beforehand. Sometimes it comes a little bit easier with some folks because seeds have been sown. But the spiritually dead do not come come and ask to be made alive. They're dead. They're dead. We go to them and share with them the gospel. Folks, the gospel is active. The spirit of the sword of the word is living and active. Christians are commanded to be active. Jesus here is walking to this nine, this, this, this town, some 25 miles south of Capernaum. Why? To preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. Folks, we have to be willing to at least walk 25 steps. Come on. And, th- and this was a short trip for Jesus. He went all over Galilee in Israel, sharing the gospel of the kingdom. We have to be active. And as Jesus approached the city gate here, he, the first thing he encounters is a funeral procession. Verse 12 tells us a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So evangelistic outreach, that, that courage to take the gospel of the kingdom now has brought him into the vicinity of a grieving widow. It's taken him into her path. Folks, that's the way that God works. When we're out there active and and we're engaging people, God takes us into the vicinity of people who are in a crisis, who are in trouble. Scripture says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, right? We might make our plans, but God is guiding us. And And the steps of evangelism take us directly to people. How often has that happened? That happens. You run into that all the time. When you're active, God takes you to people who want to find a solution to their problems. On this occasion, it's a widow, folks, and she's lost her only, her only means of sustenance. Her only means of sustenance in, in this brief account, just a few verses here in Luke. It, it's only recorded in, in Luke. Nowhere else has this this brief story. But in these short few verses, the writer Luke takes initiative to emphasize a couple things. First, she's a widow. She is a widow. Secondly, this was her only son. Folk, what a, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. I don't think I even need to take time to go and expound about, about how difficult a road this would be in the ancient world. For a, for a widow to lose her only son. And, and, and in a society that is agrarian for the most part, you have to go and get your water. You have to grind your grain to make flour. Everything you had to do was manual labor. This is a devastating situation uh, in this society. 
The, the widow, she's left entirely alone. Actually, once Christ arrives, she's not alone. But he recognizes the reason that he's here, that she is the reason that he's here. And just like the woman that he met at that well, it's an opportunity to demonstrate just the manifold grace of God. He sees a broken situation, he goes directly to it. Right into it. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't go around to a different entrance into town. He goes straight into the opportunity that God has given him. He sees it broken. He he walks up. He even even draws the whole procession of the thing to a halt. (laughs) How many funeral processions have have you stopped? I I don't know of any I've stopped either. I probably won't advise that. But it comes to a halt. Folks, why would anyone do that? Why why would Jesus do that? To go and cut in on a ceremony for the dead. Verse 13 tells us. The reason that is provided is given through one word. It says, He felt compassion. Say that's three words. No. In the vernacular, he felt compassion. It's all one Greek word. Splonk nitsomai. Splonk nitsomai. It almost is like it sounds, it implies a very very deep, an emotion arising from the innermost bowels. The text provides no personal pronoun for Jesus, provides no other noun. It only provides this verb, splonknitsumai. Suggests a a deep moving, an emotional reaction moved with pity and concern from, from the inner self. Jesus is really concerned about this woman. The noun form of splonknitsumai, it it was often used during the Greco-Roman era to describe the entrails of a sacrifice at the temple. The innards. The innermost parts. It's, it's a picture of that sin offering spilling its guts on behalf of the person offering it. The sacrifice. The person being pardoned. Can you imagine the person being pardoned for forgiveness? Seeing that. Seeing that that. That substitute. The, the one that poured itself out for them. Can you imagine a person turning away and quickly forgetting about that? Walking away and turning their back on that sacrifice that died for them. The one that, that its inner parts were given up. Because that's unimaginable. Unimaginable. Sponknitsumai, it's the same verb that was used to describe the Good Samaritan as he approached that man on the road along the path. The Good Samaritan that felt compassion. A man had been stripped of his clothes. He'd been beaten and he had been robbed. And the Samaritan, it says then, he bandaged up the man's wounds. He poured oil and then wine on them so he gave ointment to them. He put him on his own beast. He, he brought him to the inn and then took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and, and uh, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. 
Anything else that he needs, I'll pay for it. I'll cover it when I come back. Folks, that's Splunk Nitsamai. Actually caring about someone. It, it indicates a deep emotional interest in someone else. It's shouldering uh, in a sincere way the anguish of another. I think if you talk to Ruth, who has quite a background in, uh, in English, she'd be able to help you understand. It's in my understanding, until 150 years ago, compassion was a verb. Now it's become a noun. Because we think that it's something that we do. That, that is something we, we uh, a need that we fix. We fix something with money. You give something, someone something that they need and, and you pay the bill for them or you do this for them and you think that you've shared compassion. 150 years ago it wasn't that way. They, they used to call it to compassionate. And it was a verb. And it meant to share in that person's anguish. To know their anguish and be part of that anguish. And here's the point. When Jesus saw this procession, and He saw this crying widow, His reaction is accurately portrayed with that one word. The Lord saw her and spoke Nitzimai! And He said to her, Don't weep! I'm here! Jesus was fully God, folks. He was also the Son of Man. And through the incarnation, God became a human being just like us. A man with emotion. He cared. He loved. He was angry when He cleansed the temple. He wept over Jerusalem. When He saw the rich young ruler, it says that He loved him. Folks, before his crucifixion, he was in such anguish, it was like he sweat droplets of blood. The anguish that he felt. He was an emotional man who loved deep from within. <laughs> he loved. The modern idea that, that, that strength is by not showing emotions, Lord, that's an American thing. Jesus is about as strong as you can get. He shared. He shared with the woman's anguish. The absence of Splunk Nitzimai, it's actually one of the things that Jesus warns about in Matthew 24 is a sign of His coming. He says that most people's love, agape, most of it will turn cold. Jesus wasn't the tin man who didn't have a heart. He, he certainly wasn't the lion who couldn't stop crying. He was a person, a perfect person, a sinless person of God who loved us. And he loved us so much, he went to the cross and he spilled out his blood. He spilled himself for us. Splunk needs some eye. That type of compassion, folks, it causes him to reach out and shoulder the burden of this widow. He loved her. In verse 14, he came up and he touched the coffin. 
And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Who can speak and raise the dead except God? Dead are raised by God speaking. Speaking to them. Just like the centurion last week. Similar principle. He told Jesus, you just say the word. My servant will be healed. You say the word. Jesus didn't cross-examine that centurion and say, well, I don't know. Sure that he has enough faith? You think that he really wants to be healed? Jesus just spoke the word. Just spoke the word. Jesus didn't have to ask permission to heal a centurion's servant. The widow's dead son, he didn't have any say in the matter. The miracle of the resurrection comes through the spoken word of God. Communicated. Spoken word of God to dead people even. Folks, that's the ultimate miracle. That is the ultimate miracle. Jesus didn't have to touch the coffin. Didn't have to reach out and touch that. He could have stood at a distance and said, Lazarus, arise! Lazarus arose, right? We all know why Jesus called out Lazarus by name. If you're new here, or you're new around, you'd have to know it's because if Jesus didn't call him out just by name, then everybody would have come out of the tomb. Entire crypt would have walked out. That's how powerful the Word of God is. That's how powerful the Word of God is. Folks, you are a Christian today because God has called you by name. Arise! Come forth! Arise, O sleeper! Come alive. Folks, that's how powerful the Word of God is. Just as spoken through Ezekiel, O dry bones, hear the Word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, or to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you might come alive. Then he says, Then you will know that I am the Lord. Do we know? Now we know, don't we, Sam? We know who's the Lord. Is God that powerful? Is He powerful enough to cause both physical and spiritual birth? Oh, He is. He is. How do you think that He created Adam and Eve? Think about that for a minute. Did God have to get the permission from the dust? From His own creation? uh, To to raise up Adam and, and then make him, Genesis says, into a living soul? No. No. He didn't have to ask permission from his creation. In fact, he reminded Adam. He reminded him who he truly was, saying, You will return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Everyone's going to return to the dust, void of Christ's coming before that time. Void of the breath of life, biologically, folks, we're dirt. We're dirt, that's it, matter. You want to... You want, You want to test that? Go to the cemetery. Void of the Spirit of God were just matter. And this widow's son didn't have any say in the matter. Did you get that? Didn't have any say in the matter? Wasn't funny. Forget it. 
In verse 15, the dead man, the, the word is more literally corpse. Actually, the Greek is nekros. Does that sound familiar? It's where we get that word necrosis. You ever seen pictures of flesh that, that is dead and it's turned black? That's what we're talking about here. Deadness. Complete deadness. That's, that's a picture of this man's condition. He was a necros. And that necros sat up and it began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. You know, folks, this young man's name, it was Bob. And he walked over to his mother and he hugged her and that entire crowd applauded Bob. And he said, Bob, you, that, that, that's just amazing. How did you do that? I mean, that, that, that's the greatest trick we've ever seen, Bob. No. Jesus said, young man, arise. Arise. And in verse 16, it says that fear gripped them. Would it not? You got someone, a necros, a corpse, and it rises up and starts speaking? They all began glorifying God, it says, and saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. Oh, they got that right. And God has visited His people. And the report concerning Him went all over Judea and all the surrounding district. Lord God received the credit for that. For bringing the person to life. Only God can provide life. Bob, he, he, didn't, he didn't do much. Actually, he didn't do anything. For he was dead. And God made him come to life. Of course, the point, you all see us going there. Um, it's acknowledged that Jesus' compassion is always on display through the ultimate miracle. Dead people being made alive. It's quite impossible, really, to, to apply this to a physical resurrection today. We don't see a whole lot of people that are dead coming back to life. Actually, we don't see any. If we try to do that, we completely miss the point of this. Even in the vision in Ezekiel that we read earlier about the dry bones, it's not focused on the physicality of the resurrection. As we read, you probably noticed it's focused on the spirituality of the resurrection, right? It's an image of the future spiritual resurrection of Israel. I will make you come back to life. In Ezekiel 37, verse 13, God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, prophesy this, son of man. Say to my people, then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves. It's a resurrection of Israel. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. It doesn't get much more specific than that. Ezekiel is actually prophesying a future spiritual rebirth for Israel. That has not yet come to pass. But it's the same type of spiritual rebirth that we have experienced in the church. And it's the same type of rebirth prophesied by Joel that the Apostle Peter uses on the day of Pentecost to say this is a pouring forth of God's Spirit. A pouring out of God's Spirit on people. It's the power of the spiritual rebirth that Ezekiel is emphasizing. Not those dry bones from thousands of years ago. For what ultimate good is it to resurrect Bob back to physical life if he doesn't get spiritual life? What's the point? 
since Bob and his mom, they're just going to die again anyhow. They're going to go back to the grave again. And if they don't receive the spiritual life, what has been achieved except delaying the inevitable for a few more years? You ultimately would accomplish nothing in that. That's not the ultimate miracle. The ultimate miracle is God putting his spirit within them. With this physical resurrection, it it is provided to validate that Jesus is the one who holds the power over death and over life. People need to be raised to life spiritually, not just physically. Physically, really in the long in the long term of things, in the eternal in the eternal uh, aspect of it, that doesn't do anything for them. You must be born again, folks. You must be born again. And although we'll all eventually die and go to the grave, just as Bob did, just as Bob's mom did, Jesus assures us through faith in him, we will never die. Never. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, says Christ. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? Folks, do you believe this? Bob's resurrection is just an illustration to point that Jesus is the one who has the power over life and death. This is, this is why Jesus will tell that deputization next week from John the Baptist that will come to him and say, are you the expected one? And, and Jesus will respond by bringing up some of the smaller miracles. But in the end he will say, tell John the dead live. John would immediately reflect back. John was a, he was good with the scriptures. He'd immediately look back at Ezekiel. He'd know this is the dry bones coming to life. That surely is the promised son of man. Jesus is the promised son of man. In in fact, Jesus most often refers to himself uh, with that title from Daniel and Ezekiel. I am the son of man. Christ's compassion, the spunk needs of my demonstrated in many different ways, folks. But it's on greatest display when people are brought to new life. When spiritually dead people are made alive. We don't raise people physically from the dead today. Even near the close of the New Testament, the apostolic era now turning to a close, Hebrews 9.26 describes it as now at the consummation of the ages. The canon of Scripture is about to close at that point. And we are assured in the next text, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once and then judgment. There's one shot at this now. One shot. You get to pass through life this one time. You've got to decide whether or not you're going to believe that Jesus is the one, folks. There are no second chances. There are no second chances. Today, is the day of salvation. Nobody dies and goes to heaven for 90 minutes, then comes back and gets a great book deal. I read that book. It's rife with errors and contradictions. And Folks, nobody's going to heaven and then coming back. We're going. We'll die once, and then we'll face God, and there will be judgment. I don't need a little boy to write a book to tell me 
that heaven is for real, folks. This book tells me heaven is for real. If you don't believe this book, the word of God that gives life, there's nothing I can do. You'd be spiritual dead. Our responsibility as Christians is to be active, to speak God's word, that he might raise the spiritually dead. That is the ultimate miracle. We speak the word, God does it. We don't raise the dead, the dead don't raise themselves. 1 Peter 1.23 says, We speak the word, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but, is imper- or, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. That's how you were born again. That's why, why at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, we say we preach Christ. We preach the word of God. We know that we are born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but by the will of God, by the power of God. So we pray to God. We are active in prayer. We ask Him to open doors to the gospel as, as the Apostle Paul did. We, we pray that we will speak clearly as we ought to speak when we witness to people. We, we petition Him to open hearts, to receive the words that we are about to give, that we are about to speak to Him or to them, we ask him to give life God is a life giver if he's not why would we pray if God can't open the heart of your cousin up in Maine if he can't do that if he doesn't have the power to do that why would you pray if he has nothing to do with it there'd be no point in prayer if God doesn't have that power but he does and he raises people to new life through the word. So we can pray confidently God, to God. We can pray confidently to him, knowing that he is mighty to save. God so wills for his glory, for his eternal glory, glory, the dead will be raised. Let's pray.